You guys look great today. Another exciting day. We got some baptisms at the end of service. I'm anxious to get to those. Uh, but I've got a, a word here in John 15 that I think demands our attention today. And so we'll, we'll get into that. So if you have your Bible, you can turn to John chapter 15. While you're turning there, I just want to introduce myself. If you're visiting today, my name is Kyle Jones, lead pastor here. Thank you so much for coming and uh, for worshiping with us today. And if you're joining us for baptisms, then uh, thanks for, for coming and cheering on your loved ones. All right, we're glad that you're here. Uh, so we are in John chapter 15. Uh, we've been walking through the book of John off and on over the last um, spring and fall, I guess. And so, or over the last fall, spring, fall, spring. <laughs> anyway, so here we are. And uh, we're like four semesters in. We're going to finish it up in the next several weeks. But uh, the reason we started this series is we said we want to just take a gospel and, and look and see Christ in the gospel and, and then see how that may affect our life. And so looking at the different ones, John just presents Jesus in a way that the other ones don't. Not really for, for better or for worse, just differently. And so we, we settled on, on John. In John chapter 20, verse 31, John writes, he said, the reason I've written all of these things about Christ, there's many more things I could have written, but the reason I wrote these down was so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, that He is the Son of God, and that having believed in Him, you may have life in His name. And so we get to look at Jesus today, and our hope is, our goal is, our prayer is that we would find life in His name this morning. So uh, now we established this last week because we're in just the last few hours of Jesus's life. Uh, it, it won't be long and He'll breathe His last breath. And so um, he, has all, he, he is now with the 11 disciples who are not named Judas Iscariot. Uh, he has already sent Judas away to finalize his betrayal. And in Jesus now with these 11 who will go on to become uh, the first apostles uh, isn't really holding anything back. He is preparing them for life uh, without Him or life after His departure. Uh, and so last week, He just begins to tell them about he, how He is the true vine and they are the branches. And, and what that means is, is that apart from Him, they can do nothing. But if they'll abide in Him, and if His words will abide in them, they will bear much fruit, He says. Uh, and so now, uh, we're just continuing. You know, this is the next breath of Christ, though it's a week later for us, but this is, a, this is just verse 18, right? Um, now He's going to issue uh, both a, really a warning and a promise. And, and so let's read that, and then I'll, I'll pray for us. John 15, 18 says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know Him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. Now that, I, don't, I won't get into that a ton today, but I just want to take a moment to explain it. He's not talking about guilty of all sin. He's just talking about the sin of, of, of specifically rejecting the God-man in the flesh, Jesus Himself. All right, Romans 3.23 very clearly lays out that we are all guilty of sin. Amen, that we've all fallen short. So I just wanted to clarify that. Uh, but now they have no excuse for their sin. 
Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. In the same sense as earlier. (laughs) But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. Meaning he didn't do anything sinful against them. Their hate is unwarranted in a sense of he didn't cause it. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. 16, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. That's exactly why they killed Christ, right? They thought they were defending God. They thought we're killing a guy who claims to be God, but he's not. So we're doing the world and ourselves a favor. Uh, When in fact, they killed the very God in the flesh. uh, Their very God in the flesh. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. All right. So let's pray. (laughs) Father, we love you. And we are glad to open up your word now. Father, we pray that you would be with us, that you would open up our hearts to receive these words. Uh, Lord, that as we read last week, we pray that your words would abide in us in such a way that they would bear fruit. So, Father, help us in this now. Lord, where we look into your word and we, we find fault, or we think it's not saying something that it's saying, Lord, would you help us uh, to just clear our minds of any preconceived ideas or notions and to come to your word humbly, knowing that this is your word, And that it's very likely that it's going to go against the things that I think. Uh, But help us to be transformed, to look more like Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, uh, just a a brief history of the hostility uh, toward, or of hostility toward Christians. The, The stories of an unrighteous person's hostility toward a righteous person is a tale as, as old as time, quite literally. It, it starts with Satan's hostility towards God, uh, which led to him being kicked out of heaven, banished to hell, and then he finds his way into the garden and tempts Eve at the beginning of creation, creating hostility uh, in Eve toward God by causing her to doubt God's goodness. Did God really say? No, God doesn't mean that. He means that if you were to do that, you would become like Him, and then you wouldn't need Him anymore. So He creates in her a doubt of God's goodness, which creates hostility in her. She thinks that God's withholding something from her, and so she sins. Now, you and I are guilty of much the same, much, or, or sin much like that, right? That we often doubt the goodness of God, and so we'll follow our own hearts, or we'll follow our own ideas, our own ways about things. Um, and so, uh, after the fall, Adam and Eve are then kicked out of the garden, right? This is the curse. And the day that you eat it, you will surely die. And so they're not allowed to enjoy forever life anymore, or eternal life anymore. They're kicked out of the garden and, and sent to live in what was to them a new land. Now, Eve then gives birth to two sons, Cain and Abel. In Genesis chapter 4, we see that when it came time for Cain and Abel to give their offerings to God, only Abel's was accepted by God as a righteous gift. It says there that Abel gave the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions, which would have been the very best of what he had. He gave that to God. He said, God deserves the very best. And so from his heart, out of the abundance of his heart, he gives the very best to God. 
Then we read that Cain only gave, and it says it this way, Cain only gave an offering from the fruit of the ground. So Cain just kind of looks around and says, hey, I've got this, I can give that to God. It's not the best. It's not the best of what he had. It wasn't the first fruits of what he had had. He just simply says, ah, I'm supposed to give to God. Here's a gift to God. And so um, he becomes jealously angry that his brother Abel's gift was accepted by God as righteous and his was not. And so God comes to him and he, he sees this in him and he comes to him and he warns him about how sin is crouching and, and ready to, to take over him if he is to, to give over or give himself over to these thoughts and he doesn't listen. And so Cain ultimately murders his brother Abel. And if you read throughout the rest of the Old Testament into the New Testament, you, it, you'll see that it is chock full of stories about the unrighteous person's hostility towards righteous people or people who were God's people. And Jesus is warning His disciples here, and I think we should take notes that the hostility which will soon send Him to the cross, which is soon going to take His life, isn't going to go away anytime soon. And He was right. That the same hostility exists in our world today, as we've seen uh, even throughout church history. If you go back and just do a quick overview of church history, you'll see uh, through the years, through the, uh, through the centuries, Christians being martyred. Christians' lives being taken, Christians under great persecution. And even now we have churches, not usually in America, but churches in our world that are under great persecution from governments and uh, evil regimes and all sorts of things. And they're continuing to flourish amid great persecution. And so it really it varies. The persecution will vary in nature depending on where uh, you are in the world. But we know that hostility still exists. Even though it may look different for us than it does in China, hostility still exists. So, what is the cause of hostility towards Christians? People who are supposed to be the most loving, most peaceful, most joyous, most generous, most giving people in the world. What is the cause of hostility? And then how do we overcome it? I think Jesus is teaching His disciples those two things in this text today. I think He's showing them the cause of hostility, and I think He's showing them the way to overcome it, or at least the hope in the middle of it, which is a way to overcome it. Now, the first thing, if you're taking notes, you can write this down. The world hates the Jesus in you. The world hates the Jesus in you. It's important for us to remember these words that we're reading today are just rolling right out of the same breath that Jesus was talking about in the text we read last week. This is a, just a continuation of their conversation where we read, if you're abiding in Him, meaning that, that you're receiving life from Him, right? You're connected to the true vine in a way that you're receiving life and, it, and you're bearing fruit. That, that's what it means to abide. He gives us life and He causes us to bear fruit. And so we're connected to Him in that way in that way, that if you're doing those things, He calls you friends. You're no longer servants of God, you're now His friends. He's revealing everything to you that the Father has also revealed to Him. And if we are friends with Christ, then we are no longer friends with the world. There's a separation now. Jesus says it as much there in the beginning of our text today. He says, you are not of the world. 
He doesn't say you're not in the world. He says you're no longer of the world. We're going to see this again in his prayer in John chapter 17. He says, but I chose you out of the world, so the world hates you. You don't look like the world. You're not of the world anymore. Now the world hates you because I chose you out of the world and made you something different. I've, I've saved you. First John 2 uh, reminds us that we should not, as Christians, love the world or the things of the world. But he goes on to add this warning there. He says, if you, uh, sorry, if anyone loves the world or the things of the world, then the love of the Father is not in him. So you can have someone who professes Christ, but then is not bearing any kind of fruit for Christ and instead is still very much attached to with his desires and his passions uh, for the world or attached to the world and his love for the world. The Bible says that the man who loves the world and, and claims to love the Father, the, the truth's not in him, that, that he's a liar. He's, he, the Father is not in him. And so clearly we see then that, that what is taking place is that because we are in Christ, because he's chosen us out of the world, he's saved us, we are a new creature altogether. We're totally different in the eyes of both Christ and the world than worldly people. Amen? You've got a new thing inside you. There's a new spirit in you. The Bible's very clear that God takes your heart of stone, pulls it out, and He gives you a heart of flesh. You are now alive in Christ, is the phrasing that you'll see over and over throughout the New Testament. As Paul's writing his letters, the, the very first thing that Paul establishes always in his letters to any church, he's going to spend a, a lot of time explaining to them how you are no longer a part of the world. You are no longer uh, in the world. You are now in Christ. He has saved you, and here's how he's done it. And he shows all those things, and then from that, he'll tell you how to live. But it's never that he comes to a church and says, hey, you guys shouldn't be doing that, start doing this. It's always he's reminding them of who they are in Christ, that you've been saved, you are a new creature, altogether different from the world. Now, from that, here's how you should live your life. Here's how you can live that life. And so we're altogether different. In some sense, we may as well be little green men from outer space to the world. They understand us that much at times. But that doesn't really get to the matter, the heart of the matter at hand, in my opinion. That's not quite needling down far enough or drilling down far enough. Being in Christ is altogether offensive to the world because Jesus testifies that their actions are evil. Now we're getting to the heart of the matter. To just say I'm a Christian and to live worldly or to live really no different than the world is not offensive, right? If I'm a Christian and I approve of all things sinful by my life, my actions, and the things that I say are okay, the world will not find fault in that. The world will not be offended by that. But Christ calls us to a different life. He calls us to a different example. He calls us to stand firm in the truth, to, to live righteously. He says to be holy as I am holy. It's really hard work. But He's creating in us a brand new creation as we see in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17-21. through 21. You, you become a new creation. You're given a new ministry. You, you become an ambassador for Christ. You now represent the, the, your Master, your Lord, the One who sent you. You're representing Him in the world. And so altogether, we're different. We don't look the same as the world, and we ought not. It doesn't mean we're hateful or spiteful to the world. It just means we look different. We stand for truth. 
And we are light and darkness. We're salt in a decaying world. We're a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. Right? It, our good works are supposed to shine before all mankind that they may see those good things and glorify God. Not us. Glorify God. So I don't do good works beating my chest. Right? Say, oh, look at me. Look how great I am. I do good works and say, look at the Father. He's the one who's given me a heart to do these things. He's the one who's transformed my life. And so Christ is altogether offensive to the world because Christ testifies that their actions are evil. This is the, the, the thing we read in John chapter 1, right? That Jesus came into the darkness. That He was light in the darkness and the darkness didn't want anything to do with Him. They hated Him for it. They reviled Him for it. But some of them didn't. Some of them became Christians. Some of them gave their life to Him. Others still hated Him. Sent Him to a cross. Therefore, we know that Christians will be hated also. Partly, you are hated as Christians, partly because you're associated with the one who is supremely hated, Christ. But it's also partly because we, as we increase in abiding love, as we increase in obedience, as we increase in fruitfulness, the same things we see in John chapter 15, verses 1-17 through 17 that we looked at last week. As we're increasing in those things, we will have the same effect in the world today that Christ did. We will be light in darkness. It will be offensive at times. It will bring about persecution. You may not get your job promotion because of the way you stand for Jesus, or the way you live for Jesus, or the things you won't participate in at your work. Who cares? You may not win the world's approval or favor. Who cares? Your eternity is not based on how the world sees you. It's based on who you are in Christ Jesus. We ought to live from that. We are light from that. That's what matters most. And light always exposes darkness. It always does. This is why light and darkness are used throughout God's Word to explain to us what sin is and what God's righteousness is. The, the Bible tells us that the things which we do in the darkness or behind closed doors will be at one day shouted from the rooftops. Those sins that we think are quiet or hidden or secret or just between me and me, <laughs> they'll be shouted from the rooftops one day. One day we'll be outed in those things. When that day comes, do I want to stand in my own righteousness, which would be foolishness, it's filthy, it's worthless, or do I want to stand under the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus? Amen? This is what lays before us. So the world may very well, and we're right to understand it this way, the world may very well receive little green men from space before they receive Christ in us. It's it's less offensive to them. In a lot of ways, a little green man from outer space would be less offensive to an unbeliever than Christ is. Isn't that incredible? But it's because the righteousness of God does not sit well with people. Not in our natural state. In our natural state, we're sinful. The Bible says that we're dead in our trespasses and sins. That we're followers of Satan. We do His bidding, whether we know it or not. We're children of wrath. If that's who we are before Christ, then the righteousness of God is not going to sit well with us. 
1 Corinthians 1.18, part A says, For the word of the cross, meaning the gospel, the news about who Christ is, is folly to those who are perishing, meaning it's foolishness to those who are perishing. The, the world saw the glory of God revealed in flesh, perfectly, in Jesus Christ. And what did it do to Him? What did the world do to Jesus? It crucified Him, right? <laughs> are, are we to sit here and think that if we were in their shoes, we would have done anything differently? And in fact, what's so amazing about it is it's the one thing in that day that Jews and Gentiles could finally agree on. Jesus must go. Can't keep Him around here anymore. Why? Because light is offensive to darkness. The world hates Jesus. They don't know the Father. They're, they have no interest in loving the Lord. How could they? Why should they? Do we love those who, who call us out or who make us feel like we're less than adequate in any kind of a way? No. We're typically guilty of posturing, of trying to make ourselves look better than we really are so that we don't have to experience that. But the world saw the glory of God revealed in Jesus perfectly. <laughs> Grace and truth perfectly revealed. The glory of God revealed and it murdered Him. And so Jesus says, do not be shocked when the world hates you like it does me. If they persecute me, they will persecute you. There is no excuse for their sin. And now they are guilty of not only hating me, but hating the Father also because He's the one who sent me. So now they hate the very person they say they love. Proving that they never really understood or loved the Father to begin with. The love of the Father wasn't in them. They liked the rules. They liked the titles. They liked the status it gave them. And Jesus says, they hated me without a cause, and the same will be true for you. In other words, the hatred that Jesus receives was unwarranted. And in many ways, the hatred that you and I will receive, I won't say it's always unwarranted, but in many ways, it will be unwarranted. It comes from irrational evil in the hearts of people. That's it. It's, it's a love for darkness. Again, John 1, they loved the darkness and hated the light. This is what led them to crucify Christ. They loved their darkness. People love their darkness. The world hated Jesus, and it will hate the Jesus in you. Now, I, I think we can do ourselves some favors as Christians. All right, and I've got a ton of thoughts on this. A ton of, a ton of things that just kind of irk me but I won't go into those. I'm not going to give you my laundry list or stand on my soapbox up here and, and proclaim those things to you, all right? But we can do that over coffee sometime. But, but I have two deep convictions from Scripture on this. I think there's two things from Scripture that we ought to get right. And I think we could do ourselves a lot of favors as Christians, the perception of Christians from the world, if we could get these things right. Number one is Christians should love one another as Christ loved us. Jesus says as much in John chapter 13. 
It says, love one another the way that I have loved you. That was his new commandment. It was new to love people the way Christ loved. It hadn't been seen before. But the Bible says, he says, Jesus says, that the way that you love one another will prove that you are my disciples. It will prove that, that, that you are mine. That, that means that the truest mark of discipleship is our love for one another. So, in other words, do you say that you love Jesus? Then you had better love your brother and sister in Christ. Spouses, this means you love one another, right? This means we love our friends who are in Christ, but we love our brothers and sisters who are in Christ. Jesus is saying, this is how the world will know that you love me is in the way that you love one another. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, this is, this is my authorized way for the world to, to, to look at you and judge whether or not you are real. That, that your love as Christians for one another is my authorized way for you to be convincing to the world. This is it. If, if the world looks into our churches... Let's just say this church. If the world were to look into, outsiders were to look into this church and they do not see love, then they have every right to judge us as hypocrites. Right? Again, 1 John is helpful. This is the epistle that John writes to churches. He says that if you say you love your brother, or if you say you love the Lord, but you do not love your brother, then the love of the Lord is not in you. What? It's that serious that if I say I love the Lord, but I cannot figure out how to love my brother or sister in Christ, then the love which I say I have, I don't actually have? I'm a liar? Wow. That's heavy. So here's kind of a funny confession to make. As a, as a pastor, um, <laughs> I won't even say it that way. As a guy who struggles with man's approval or man's affirmation in life, one of the things that, that I used to I used to kind of wish I would hear more of is like how great the pastor is, right? Like, man, he's just he's good. Like he, he preaches so well, and so you, you know you'll you'll hear people talk about the church and 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 all these things about the church, and I never I never hear me, right? And so part of me is like, man, that that really stinks. Well, that's just me being an idiot. All right, so I'm confessing that to you. <laughs> It's just, that's sin in me. I, I confess sin in me to you now. Do you know what's even more beautiful to me once I can get out of my own idiotness? <laughs> is that when you guys talk about this place that you call New Life Home, you're always talking about the love that we have for one another. Biblically speaking, that's the greatest thing a pastor could ever hear from his people or about a church. So I, I do, I stand in amazement of you and the way that you love one another, the way that you've taken God's word seriously and have, have loved one another. It's the truest mark of Christ in you. And I don't take that for granted at all. And so it doesn't take me long to get out of my idiotness and, and begin to praise God for what he's done in your life. So I, I celebrate that with you. 
I think the second thing that we should be is that Christians need to stop pretending that we have it all together. So if we, we can do ourselves these favors, right? We can love one another as Christ has loved us. Absolutely. But then we can also stop pretending that we have it all together. Usually when someone's called a hypocrite who goes to a church or calls themselves Christian, it's because they're pretending like they have it all figured out. Like they've got life figured out. They've got all their, all their stuff together. And, and anybody with eyes and a brain can look at you and say, well, you don't have it all figured out. And you're like, no, but I do. I, I really do. No, you don't. I don't know who you think you're fooling, but it's not me. Right? And that's the way the world looks at us. And so they just say, Man, I just soon not give up an hour and a half of my Sunday morning and go play golf instead. Or sleep in. Watch reruns of The Bachelor or something. I don't know. That would be more productive than attending a church that's not Christian. Not truly Christian. And I just look at them and I say, man, I wouldn't blame you. you you've judged rightly in a lot of ways. Because we profess Christ and then out of the same breath, for whatever reason, we profess that we've got it all figured out. So, so here's what I'm saying is, is, if we call ourselves Christians, right? We're professing Christ. We are now Christians. We are saying Christ lives in me. Then what we are saying is that God has saved us from our bondage to sin by His grace, through our faith in Jesus Christ, and that now we are living this life where we are being transformed into the same image of Christ day by day, from one degree of glory to the next. In other words, what we are saying or what we, we are confessing is that we did not have it all together and we needed a Savior, and so He has saved us, and now we're living for Him and we're being transformed, though we're still sinful but we've been saved to the uttermost. And that Christ is producing in us Himself by His Holy Spirit. That He who began that work in me is going to bring it to completion at the day of Christ. I, I can believe that. I can know that. But if, if we're saying that and then we're saying in the same breath, well, I've got it all figured out. I've got it together. I don't have those issues. There's not a better husband in the world than me. Not a better father in the world than me, right? I mean, that's kind of what we project. Like if my life is always like an Instagrammable picture, then I'm lying to myself and lying to the world. It's just not true. And so I think we of all people, people who say I've been saved by Christ, meaning I needed a Savior and I knew I needed a Savior, I think of all people, we ought to understand our need for grace. And we ought to walk in it. And when I say walk in it, I mean daily confessing our sin. Daily confessing our need for Jesus. Being aware of our shortcomings. And then leaning into Christ. Not trying to pick up my, my, myself up by my bootstraps or, or, or navel gaze my way into perfection. But to lean into Christ. To trust Him above all else that He will produce in me more of Himself as I abide in Him. I think we would do ourselves a lot of favors if we would do that. It's true that the world may hate Jesus in you. Absolutely. And sometimes you can't control that. But we ought to, at the very least, make Christ as beautiful to the world as we possibly can by the way that we live for Him.
by the way that we trust him, by the way that we love him, by the way that we love one another, by the way that we love sinners. And so here's one way I think we do that. Gosh, I promise no soapbox, but this is the one right here, all right? We cannot, as Christians, expect non-Christians to live like Christians. Do you understand what I'm saying? We, we can't get outraged at every little point of depravity in man. Like, like when man shows that he doesn't love the Lord, we can't be outraged by that. Instead, it ought to drive us to our knees in tearful prayer at the sins of people. It should create in us compassion, not a passion against them, not a holy hatred of them. There's no such thing as that, by the way. But those are the phrases I've heard growing up in churches. So I do think it's true that you can hate sin and love people. But man, you better be careful that you're not just using that phrase to justify hating people. Because it sure feels that way sometimes. Not from you guys, I'm just throwing it out there that it feels that way among Christians. All right, soapbox over. Patricia's proud of me. It didn't last that long. All right. I think a beautiful Christ can trump the hatred of Christ in people. Amen? It has to. It's our hope. So the second thing that I think Jesus wants us to see here is that the Jesus in you is greater than the world's hatred. The Jesus in you is greater than the world's hatred. He is greater in at least two ways. First, he's greater that the Jesus in you is greater than their hatred of him, right? He, he overcomes their hatred of him. Jesus says, if they kept my word, they will keep yours also. So there's some hope then that yes, people will hate you in the same way they hated him, but there's also some hope now that as you're proclaiming Christ, there are some people who will listen to those words and be saved. They'll keep those words as some have done his. When the helper comes, Jesus says, he will bear witness about me and you will also bear witness. Now, I mentioned the first part of 1 Corinthians 1.18 earlier, and now I want you to see the rest of it. The first part, again, just to remind ourselves where we're at. For the word of the cross is folly, it's foolishness to those who are perishing. Oh, I love the buts of God in Scripture. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. To us who are being saved, it is the power of God. We love the word of the cross, don't we? Don't we love the good news of Jesus going to the cross on our behalf? Don't we understand that it's that good news which led us to understand our need for Christ? Led us to confess Him as our Savior? It's a great word. So we have hope then as Christians that the same powerful word of the gospel of Jesus which overcame our hatred of God can overcome the hatred in others also. That the Jesus in you is greater than the hatred of the world. To, to some, though, the message of the cross will always be foolishness. But to others, it will have a powerful saving effect on their souls. And this is why we preach the Word. This is why we share the Word. This is why we live the Word. This is why we, it's important to be light and salt in this world. Is it will bring people to come to know Christ as their Savior, to call them out of darkness into marvelous light, as Peter says, and we sang this morning. And, and Jesus encourages His disciples with this truth. 
There is a helper who will come and He is going to be with you throughout your Christian life. The Holy Spirit who will be in you, that helper, will bear witness about Christ through us. And the way that Christ taught about the Father, the Holy Spirit is now in us to teach about Christ. Therefore, as we bear witness about Jesus, we know then that the Holy Spirit is working in us. He's working through us. And He's going to use us to save people. Praise God! I got to experience this just a couple of weeks ago with my my firstborn son. There's no greater joy than to hear someone to to pray in, in a way that you know they've received the Lord. I didn't share this last week, but, but Wells had become aware of sin. And, and not in a, like, do you want to go to heaven with mommy and daddy or go to hell? Like, bad people. We never had that conversation. Every kid's going to make that decision. But what we did talk about was our need for Jesus. Our sins. Our disobedience to the Father in the way that we disobey mommy and daddy. Or in the way that we hit our brother and sister. Or yell or or show selfishness, all of those things. We need Christ to save us. And so Wells became increasingly aware of that. He began to ask the Lord. He came to me one day and said, Daddy, I've been praying to Jesus to forgive me when I, when I do bad things. Man, that's awesome. And then he, he sat there with me and he said, Dad, I'm ready to be baptized. I, said, I think you are too, bud. I think you understand it. So Wells, why don't you pray? I didn't tell him what to pray, not repeat after me. You know what he said? He said, he said, Father, thank you for sending me Jesus to die for my sins. And thank you for moving me to believe in him. Praise God. Six-year-old is aware of the fact that I don't choose Jesus unless he moves in me. Unless he moves me to that point. And he chose Christ. And I'm grateful for it. And this is our hope that people will choose God as we tell them about Christ. They become increasingly aware of their sin. And they say, I don't want to walk in those things anymore. I want to be saved. And that Christ saves them. We have that hope. And He encourages us to share this. He, Christ makes all of our gospel proclamations powerful. They're either going to be powerful for, for judgment as they consider it folly or foolishness, or it's going to be powerful for salvation as they receive Christ and are saved. No no matter how broken our representations or our presentations of God may be, God's kingdom is going to advance through us. Of this we can be sure. And of this we ought to be joyous, excited. And so we have this great hope that people will be saved as we tell them the good news. I think the second thing that we see here about how Jesus is greater than the world's hatred, is that Jesus, the Jesus in you will keep you from falling away during persecution. Jesus says as much. He says, I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. Jesus uses His words, what we now have as Scripture, right? To, to teach us about Himself, to keep us from falling away. For the believer, what Christ is saying is that for the believer, apostasy, turning away from our love for God and back to our love for the world, is a greater threat to us than persecution is. 
This is what Jesus was getting at when he said in Matthew, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. He's essentially saying, who cares if they take your life? They cannot take your soul. Jesus says, rather fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Who has that power? God. So our allegiance then is to God. It's to God alone. And and we show it in the way that we abide in Christ Jesus. If you're abiding in Christ, then the Spirit of God will bear witness in you, and it's true that you will suffer or be persecuted through the hatred that the world has for Christ, the Christ in you. But you won't suffer or be persecuted without hope. You will suffer as one who knows what the suffering is producing, which is eternal glorification with Christ in heaven. According to Romans chapter 8, it says, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit. The Spirit resides in us and bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Provided that, he says, we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Suffering for Christ is one of the ways that we know that we are in Christ. It's one of the ways we know that we are saved. Again, Jesus makes clear that the persecution is unwarranted by saying in this text today, they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. They're doing these things as they're following the the, the sinful passions of their own heart. Then he adds this, he says, but I've said these things to you that when their hour, talking about the hour of persecution in your life comes, you may remember that I told them to you. Jesus is saying that persecution is meant by the world to turn us away from Christ. Right? If you'll, if you'll renounce God in this moment, I'll spare your life. Persecution is always meant to turn us away from Christ. If you'll stop preaching the good news, then we won't arrest you. We, we won't arrest your family. We won't arrest this whole church here. If you'll just stop doing that. That's what persecution is. It's always meant to turn you away from Christ. But God means for persecution to solidify and deepen our faith in Christ. It's to help us grow in faith. Because Christ said these things would come. And because He said it, we can be confident that He knows that they're there, that we're surrounded by these persecutions, and we can also be confident that Christ is in control of all things as the one who resides in heaven and all things have been placed under His rule and authority, according to Ephesians. We see this in Jesus. We see it in His crucifixion. Peter says in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, in the, the, the very first sermon there, as the church is, is getting its start, Jesus being freshly filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has just come. He's filled with the Holy Spirit, and He begins to preach the Word of God. This is, he says, in the, around about toward the end of His sermon, He says, This Jesus, whom you delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, meaning it was God's plan always that Christ would be delivered up. Isaiah 53 tells us as much. It says, you crucified him and killed him by the hands of lawless man. So though it was God's plan, you're guilty of it. You carried it out. You killed him. I don't want you to miss this. I think the important point in this is, is that at the moment where Satan thinks he has dealt a death blow to God's son, God's son just dealt a death blow to Satan. Therefore, I think we can take heart as Christians 
in our hours of persecution because what the enemy may mean for your defeat, God will use for your good and ultimately for His own victories. God has always been doing good for His people. Let me just read to you. It'll be on the screen also. Romans 8, 28 through 39. So that we can be sure that God is for us and not against us. It says, For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that it might, uh, that mortar, sorry, <laughs> let me start over, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. So He who begins the work is faithful to bring it to completion, right? We can trust this. We see it here. What then shall we say to, uh, to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. How will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's people? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, we don't have to worry about our future, nor things to come, right? Nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? If God is for us, who can be against us? The world hates the Jesus in you. But rest assured, the Jesus in you is greater than the world's hatred. Amen? Would you stand to your feet this morning?